You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Habemus Papan. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Well, hello there, everyone. It's been a little while. My name is Steve. If you don't remember me, I run this website and this YouTube channel. And I haven't done a video in a little while because, well, there's a couple of reasons. I put an update on the site. I know some of you who subscribe to the YouTube channel didn't get it. Probably should have thrown a video up. But this summer just got crazy. A lot of stuff going on, um, both in the work world and in the personal world. And I just hit a point where I had to stop for a little bit. I had to take a break from something. Uh, So I had announced on the website on onepeer5.com that I was going to take a hiatus for the summer from doing videos. And the summer has gone by very quickly and I'm not sure if I'm really done with the hiatus. I mean, I'm doing a video here now, um, mostly because I was going to sit down and write today and I just I have no gas in the tank. thought it would be a little easier to just talk to you. So actually, you know what? To facilitate this conversation, let's have some Irish whiskey. It's Friday. That's a good sound. Here, wait, let's get that right next to the mic. I want a better... Yeah. You'll also notice the sound of screaming children in the background. My kids have been home since the last week of February. They were going to... um, Charter schools here. Here we bump my mic. That's a nice color, right? Um, Patty is not my favorite Irish whiskey. Um, Tullamore Dew is. Jameson's not bad. But Patty is cheaper, and it's actually not bad. Um, And it's always good to drink on an empty stomach when you're doing a show. Because it's lunchtime, and I haven't eaten yet today. Um, Okay, so kids are home from school. Have been home for the last seven months, and um, most of them are not going to be going back. Um, COVID thing, obviously, is the reason why they wound up uh, being out of school. But as it turns out, um, I don't want to send my kids back into an environment where they're having to wear masks all day. And, you know, it's Arizona. It's it's September 25th, and it's still 100-plus degrees out today. Um, I noticed that when I put on a mask before I walk into a grocery store – that um, it's, it's hard for me to concentrate with all the screeching in the background. I actually have uh, my granddaughter is here today, too. So there's a lot of children running through the house. Um, but yeah, when I put on a mask to go to the grocery store, if I put it on outside and I trap that hot air and it doesn't work for me at all. So people know that I argued uh, in favor of reasonable public health measures. I, I haven't treated COVID as though it's a hoax. I don't believe it's a hoax. I believe the 200,000 excess American deaths that happened this year happened for a reason. Uh, But without getting back into that whole thing, at the same time, you know, there are reasonable measures and there are unreasonable. And I think we're getting well into the territory of unreasonable. I think we need to get things back to normal as much as we can. I don't know what the right answer is to any of that stuff. But I know that for us, sending our kids into that environment uh, isn't working. We're doing online uh, classes, and that was miserable, um, especially once the kids actually... So our our school started out online only, and then a month or two into the year, um, 
they started to return to campus, but there was an option to continue learning from home. And our, our kids were doing that and it just wasn't working out. First of all, we have five kids in school. So that means five devices that have to be accessed, five Zoom calls, you know, all the technical problems that you get. If you don't log in right on time, then you're counted absent. Your homework is coming through Google Docs. And if you accidentally change something and erase something, you can't get a new one easily. There's just all these things that were going on that was making life miserable, was making everybody stressed out. And, um, you know, my wife, who has not been super enthusiastic about going back to homeschooling, she did it for many years. And one of the reasons we are here in Arizona was because of the Great Heart schools here were uh, fans of, of their curriculum and their approach was because she didn't want to homeschool five grades. Um, but here we are. And we're watching our boys and we're watching the difference in their behavior. Uh, now that they're home, we're watching the fact that, you know, when they're not separated into artificial peer groups, they're all becoming friends again. And they're hanging out with each other and playing. I mean, the other day I, I walked up uh, and looked out the back door and I saw our three oldest boys sitting on the patio chairs out there, just staring at the clouds in the sky and having a conversation with one another. And I was like, wow, that just, that's something that didn't happen when they were all going to school. So, you know, it's, it's probably going to be better for them. Uh, it's more stress for us, but you know, we work from home. Uh, this is my home office. And so typically if I'm doing a podcast or recording a video, my wife is going around with a taser trying to keep everyone quiet. Not really a taser. Just, that was a joke. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a task. So today I told her, don't even worry about it. It's Friday. I don't care. I'm going to drink on camera and we're going to just talk about stuff. So that's what we're going to do. Um, what should we talk about today? We could talk about uh, Cardinal Naga, Naga, not going to work here anymore. That's all I know. Uh, Cardinal Betchu. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Betchu, Becu, Betchu, whatever the hell his name is. He's a jerk and he's gone. He had to resign because of financial malfeasance, and as Martha Stewart would say, that's a good thing. Um, Vatican tried to get ahead of a story that came out today um, in an Italian daily um, called Espresso, which was about all the mismanagement of funds and Peter's Pence and, and all this stuff uh, that Betchu was involved in. Betchu was, I always referred to him for the last couple of years as the Vatican hatchet man, because whenever there was something going on in the Vatican that needed an ax, he would show up. He was there, uh, when Cardinal Pell discovered all the money that wasn't where it was supposed to belong during the financial audit at the Vatican. And he was instrumental in, he was actually the key figure in stopping Pell's uh, financial audit of the Vatican. P Pell found a billion euros off the books in places where it didn't belong in the Vatican. I, you know, refer to it as he found it in the Vatican mattresses. Uh, bet you not only put a stop to that, but I mean, let's be honest, he probably framed him. You know, I know it's a conspiracy theory, whatever. I don't usually give in to those. But the fact that Pell's audit was stopped and then within a very short time, he's being hauled back to Australia on 40-year-old sexual abuse allegations with no evidence from a single witness. And he's put on this whole trial and his reputation is destroyed. I'm, I, I choose to believe that uh, Rome had something to do with that. Let's just put it that way. 
Um, and, and you see a similar pattern with uh, the financial auditor for the Vatican, Libero Malone, who was brought in to audit the Vatican. And next thing you know, his computer's getting hacked. He's getting accused. I forget if he got accused of espionage or what it is. They trumped up these charges against this guy who was hired to come in and do a job and basically forced him out of his position before he could do it. Well, Betchew was involved in that. Uh, he was involved in the Knights of Malta coup. Um, there are some people within the Knights of Malta who think that he's actually protecting uh, the Knights. I think that that comes from the fact that he's not the biggest fan of the German faction, but that may just be more of a power struggle issue uh, than him defending. But he was the one who was appointed as a special consultor or something like that to the Knights of Malta when Cardinal Burke, who is the Cardinal patron of the Knights of Malta, had his position effectively stripped. He still has the title, as far as I know, but he's not allowed to do anything with the Knights of Malta. So Betu was sent in as this special delegate. Uh, and again, money. There's money involved there. You know, Tens of millions of euros worth of of money that was left to the Knights of Malta and a bequest that had a great deal to do with this whole Vatican intrusion into their internal affairs. So again and again and again, Betchew shows up where there is a problem. And Betchew has been involved now in this um, financial scandal about Peter's Pence money being diverted to uh, this London luxury penthouse apartment place. You know, you've I'm sure you've probably read about it. I'm I did no prep for this show, so you're going to have to deal with a little bit of rambling. If you want to hang out with me, that's cool. Grab a drink. You know, we'll toast to one another. But I actually got a press release uh, right before I fired up the camera um, from an attorney named Mark Stanley. He is uh, with the Stanley Law Group um, in, I don't know where they are. Texas? I think they're in Texas. Yeah, okay. I'm going to just tell you what this press release says because this is about Betchew. Um, title is Resignation of Powerful Cardinal Amid Vatican Financial Scandal Confirms Allegations of Class Action Lawsuit About Wrongful Diversion of Donations to Peter's Pence. Attorney Mark R. Stanley of Stanley Law Group in Dallas, Texas, lead counsel in a class action case against the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, commented today on the sobering news that Pope Francis has accepted the resignation of Cardinal Angio, uh, Angelo Becciu, uh, the former head of the Curia, or Vatican bureaucracy. Actually, I don't even know if that's accurate. I don't know if that was his role, but whatever. Uh, as late breaking reports have confirmed, Becciu resigned after overseeing the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars in donations to the annual Peter's Pence collection intended for emergency aid to the poor into a swanky London real estate investment using a Swiss bank with a history of fraud and money laundering violations. According to the Italian newspaper L'Espresso, Angelo Beccio diverted alms money from Peter's Pence collections to speculative funds that enriched family members. Quote, the development confirms what we have been saying since we filed the case in January. There's simply no question that funds donated by American Catholics to help the poor and suffering were wrongfully funneled into luxury investments, end quote, Stanley said. Uh, quote, if the Catholic Church is serious about financial reform and accountability, it will immediately order the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops to make restitution to the millions of American Catholics it misled, end quote. Um, so... Yeah, so, and this press release goes on to argue that 
the USCCB has ignored the lawsuit and the scandal and just proceeded with the Peters Pence collection um, that's going to begin on October 4th. Remember, it was reported here at 1 Peter 5 and also in the book The Dictator Pope uh, that Peters Pence money was diverted to the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. It's been something that's been sort of reported in Italy for a while that that this is believed to have happened, but the sources, I think, have remained anonymous. We haven't been able to nail that down, but the money has no accountability. There is no accountability instrument for Peter's Pence or hasn't been uh, other than internal Vatican accountability. And, well, the Vatican's corrupt. It's as corrupt as any institution. I am about to pause my little diatribe here and turn on my office air conditioner because it's getting really hot in this room as the afternoon Arizona heat approaches. So I hope you enjoy the sound, the soothing sound of my noisy air conditioner in the background of this video. Uh, but today, I'm not even going for production values. Usually I turn it on at like 68 degrees for an hour before I do my show, and then I let it chill the room, and then I turn it off and I do the show, and it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. And when I start sweating profusely, I stop recording. That's how we, that's how we do. Um, okay, so that's Bet You. Big news this week. It's probably going to continue to be bigger uh, as time goes on. Uh, let's see. What else should we talk about? Uh, Pope's a heretic. I said that today. People got super upset. Um, Francis is a material heretic. Um, we all know this. I think, I think we know it. I'm tired of, of pussyfooting around it. Um, the example that I used, of course, was the... The thing, you know, the thing that he said about the death penalty. Uh, the idea that the death penalty is inadmissible or impermissible, that it is contrary to the gospel, that it's contrary to human dignity, um, that it is, what was the other thing that he said? Well, he, now, he apparently said it was immoral, which was something that I hadn't seen. He said this last year, uh, and I saw someone highlight, highlight that today. This is not possible. The, the death penalty cannot be immoral. Um, and for that, I'll, I'll give you Pope Innocent the First uh, on this topic. He said, quote, It must be remembered that power was granted by God to the magistrates to avenge crime uh, and to avenge crime by the sword was permitted. He who carries out this vengeance is God's minister. And he quotes Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. Why should we, uh, why should we condemn a practice that all hold to be permitted by God? We uphold, therefore, what has been observed until now in order not to alter the discipline and so that we may not appear to act contrary to God's authority. Now, that is from Pope Innocent I. I'm not going to even try to read the Latin citation. You can find that in the article that I wrote, uh, I think it was last year, uh, called Francis is Wrong About the Death Penalty, Here's Why. And if I remember, I will link that uh, in the show notes today. So... We have this problem where, you know, there's just a laundry list of citations from the scriptures, from the church fathers and doctors, from the popes, um, you know, from the Roman catechism. The death penalty is not intrinsically immoral. It's just not. And nothing that is not an intrinsic evil can be said to be universally impermissible. There is no prudential situation that can ever arise on, on the planet where we can say something that God has permitted is currently prudentially totally impermissible. 
I mean, if you can think of an example, I would like to hear it. Uh, but intrinsic evils are those that, that, that brook no moral exception. You can never find a justification to commit adultery. You can never find a justification to commit murder, which is not the same thing as killing. Murder is the intentional taking of an innocent life. There are things that you can never find a moral justification for. You can't find a moral justification for using uh, contraception. Uh, and I mean that in the sense of a contraceptive act. You're using contraceptives to prevent the act of conception. I know that there are some off-label uses for contraception that people have been morally permitted to use them for, but that's a separate issue. So exceptionless moral norms are those that are uh, negative in their characteristic. Uh, they are the thou shalt nots of the church's teaching, and they don't admit exception because they're always wrong, no matter what the circumstances are. That's what Francis is saying about the death penalty. He's not using the words intrinsic evil, but he's saying it's immoral. It's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to human dignity. Uh, our morality has basically evolved on this. And so now it's no longer permissible anywhere. And it's false. Uh, it can never be true. What he is saying can never be true. He is incapable of knowing if you even... So there are people who want to argue, oh, it's just prudential. We've reached a point in the advancement of society that there's, you know, we can render aggressors harmless and you never need to use the death penalty anymore. First of all, no, we haven't. And all you have to do is look up rape statistics in prisons or assault statistics or even homicides. You know, lifers in prison tend to commit violent offenses, especially lifers, because they don't have any hope of getting out of that situation. And so we're not able, even in the first world with all of our technology, of keeping these guys from doing these, these horrible things within the prisons. There is an epidemic of prison violence. It happens all the time. Uh, we are unable to keep these people from, from doing this stuff in the first world. If you start Googling around what prisons look like in the third world, in Latin America, in Africa, uh, you know, probably in China, it's like something from Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. It's like gladiatorial combat going on in the prisons. The inmates often run the asylum. Uh, there, there is no sense that we have attained a level of perfection within human society that would permit us to say the death penalty is never able to be licitly used. So on a prudential consideration, it's just bullcrap. That's what it is. It, it, it absolutely is not true that we have reached a point where we can render the aggressor harmless throughout the world. We've never done that. But secondly, that isn't even the reason why the church has always said that it's licit. Uh, the, the whole concept of retributive justice, of the fact that, as Genesis 9-6 says, you know, if man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. This idea of this is a, a punishment that fits the crime, and as St. Thomas taught, Actually, if, if you've committed a heinous crime like murder and you accept the punishment of death as fitting to your crimes and as an expiation for your sin, it can actually wipe out the temporal punishment that you would have had to serve. Even if you made a deathbed confession and everything else, maybe you would have spent a thousand years in purgatory for murdering somebody. But if you accept death as your punishment, as a just punishment for your sin, it can wipe that out. 
So there's there's a long and nuanced understanding of of the death penalty and of what it means and of why it was used and why it was permitted and it's rooted in scripture and in magisterial authority and it's infallible. It has been taught by the ordinary and universal magisterium of the church for 2000 years and now all of a sudden we act like we know better and we don't. And so what that means is that Francis is holding a a position of material heresy. I can't make a formal judgment on him. Nobody can. I'm not saying he's been, you know, ipso facto deposed from office or anything. This is just, these are the facts on the ground. This is where he is. Um, but when you say this stuff, people get very, very upset and understandably so because we've treated the papacy for my entire lifetime and I'm sure longer, probably since Vatican I, as though it's some sort of divine oracle, some, you know, the Pope is some prophet who can never get anything wrong, and that's just not the case. And so when I quoted this thing today that the Pope had said about death penalty being immoral, and I cited church documents and scriptures and all this stuff and said, here's why this is a heresy, I had people coming out of the woodwork to condemn me. Um, and it's because they think that this promise of never failing faith that comes from Vatican I means the Pope can't get it wrong. And the Pope can, and he did. The Pope can fall into heresy. He just can't bind the church to heresy. But all of this goes back to what I wrote about in my piece uh, last week or early this week. It's time, is, uh, time and space are being distorted by the sheer busyness of my life right now. But my piece on no more platitudes, taking a hard look at the crisis in the church, infallibility is an issue. It's an issue. We don't understand it nearly well enough. Sadevacantism exists as a function of a distorted idea of, of papal infallibility. The flip side of that coin is papal positivism, this hyper uber uh, ultramontanism that exists on the part of the guys like where Peter is and, and the Pope can never be wrong no matter what he says. I don't care what you say, guys, who are inside the church. They're just sedes that have reached a different conclusion. The sedes say the Pope can never... Uh, commit an error in matters of faith and morals, ergo, all these popes are not popes because they've committed the error. The ultra-hyper-papal Montanists on the other side are, the Pope can never commit an error in faith and, and morals, ergo, everything the Pope says is true, no matter whether it contradicted what came before him. It, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. So we have this problem with infallibility because infallibility proposes certain things and it's not just that when a pope speaks ex cathedra, he's not gonna be wrong about faith and morals. It's also this negative protection that's supposed to keep the pope from breaking faith with the tradition of, of the church's perennial teaching and of his predecessors. It's supposed to stop him from leading the faithful into error. And the issue that most of us are having right now, who are having, you know, actually thinking this through and looking at everything that Francis is doing, is that if he can say things that are heretical, if he can put a change into the catechism on the teaching on the death penalty, or if he can say that, that uh, remarried Catholics who are objectively committing adultery can receive Holy Communion without repent, uh, repentance, or if he can say in the Abu Dhabi statement, you know, basically that... Catholicism isn't the exclusive path to salvation or any of the, the other things that he said. If he can say through his intermediaries that hell doesn't really exist and the souls 
of the unrighteous are annihilated. They're not damned. And all this stuff that comes out of this everlasting gobstopper of scandalous and heretical statements from, from Rome, what good is infallibility? What, what is it actually protecting us from? Because we're all having these arguments, those of us who are really dialed in, probably more than we should be, to what's going on in the church. We're having these arguments with people every day and we're like, this is wrong. And they're like, it can't be wrong because the Pope says it's not. And other people are like, well, there is no Pope. It hasn't been a Pope since Pius XII because all these Popes have been wrong. And then other people are like, well, no, there has to be a Pope because this and that. And then other people are like, well, yeah, there is a Pope, but Benedict is the Pope. It's chaos. I'm sorry, it makes no sense. If this is the clarity that, that the doctrine of papal infallibility gives us, it's worthless. And if it's supposed to give us greater clarity and we just haven't had it properly explained to us, whose fault is that? We, we didn't issue the teaching. This comes from the Vatican. And Catholics haven't been taught what it really means if what it really means is something different than the 15,000 interpretations that people have about what it means and what a Pope can do and what he can't do and what he says and what he can't say, are canonizations infallible? And if so, why are they infallible? Are they infallible because of the process or are they infallible just because the Pope says so? And what about this? And what about that? And are papal elections really infallible? Are they dogmatic facts and blah, 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 blah. So what do we do? We sit here and we argue endlessly about all of this crap because we have no control over what's actually going on. We have no control over what's wrong in the church. We have no control over this just sewage fountain of, of error and scandal that comes out from our Pope and our bishops and the Curia every freaking day. We have no control. So we sit around and we argue about minutia that we can never prove, that we can never settle, we have no control over anything. So we just fight it out over trivia. And I don't know about you, but it's really tiresome. It's not making anything better. We're not fixing anything. And we're making ourselves miserable. And especially since, you know, the pandemic has hit and then churches have been shut down and people aren't going because you're worried about being sick. And then we're arguing about all that stuff and we're arguing about all this stuff. All we do is argue. We sit on social media because we have nowhere to go and nothing to do um, because life isn't normal out there anymore. And we're accomplishing nothing but just making ourselves crazy. So this is part of what's animating my whole we need to change the way we're looking at this stuff, we're talking about this stuff. We need to ask the bigger, harder questions. We need to say out loud, none of this makes sense. And I know that the church says this. I'm not 100% sure what the church means when she says this, i.e. papal infallibility. But I also know what my eyes are telling me. I also am an adult with a reasonably you know, normal level of intelligence. I have reading comprehension. I've taken standardized tests. I do pretty well on reading comprehension. And when I read this, it means this to me. And that seems to be in conflict with what I'm told is possible. You tell me the Pope can never say something heretical. And I say, yeah, but he did. Look, he said something contrary to the gospel. He said something contrary to church teaching. 
He said something contrary to a proposition that we have been told de fide we are supposed to believe. So I'm not a, you know, a tribunal. I can't judge him to be a heretic. I can't depose him, but I can say, well, I mean, if it looks like heresy and it walks like heresy and it talks like heresy, it's probably heresy. That's as far as I can take it, but it's a thing. So asking these questions, moving away from the constant grind of arguing over these little bits of minutiae and of being afraid to even talk about it because I really think fear is what's driving a lot of this stuff. It's the fear of, it's the fear of saying things you're not allowed to say. It's the fear of the church says this, and if I say that the church seems to be wrong, then people are going to think that I'm a heretic. People are going to think that I'm schismatic. And, and it's exactly what's been done to me since I've come out and said this stuff. I'm outside the church. Uh, I'm you know, schismatic. I'm sympathetic to schism. I'm an apologist for schism. I told a poor guy who said that he was so convinced that the, the, the papacy, the doctrines on the papacy were false, that he was becoming Eastern Orthodox. He was leaving the church for Eastern Orthodoxy. And I told him, I'm sympathetic. And I got maligned instantly for this because I said I was sympathetic, but I am. Does it mean I think he made the right decision? No, but I'm sympathetic to why he would reach that conclusion. I'm sympathetic to why Rod Dreher left the church after being confronted with an incalculable level of entrenched corruption throughout both the hierarchy and the laity when it came to sex abuse scandals. He was a convert. He put all his faith in the Catholic Church as being what it claimed to be. And when it came down to it and he found out the crap that McCarrick was doing and he wanted to report on it, nobody would go on the record. People were covering for him or they were making excuses for why we don't air our dirty laundry in public. So he had to sit on that story for 10 years because he didn't have a source that would go on the record and say McCarrick is a monster. And unlike some people out there in the media landscape today, Rod's a journalist and you can't just make crap up without a source. You can't just make accusations. You're just going to get sued into oblivion and nobody's going to believe it. You have to be able to corroborate your stories. So when I see people attacking him, saying that he, you know, intentionally hid this or that he just left the church because he was weak or whatever. He, he was a guy who was faced with a scandal that was so deep that it was ripping apart his faith and it was damaging his faith, not just in the church, but in God, because if this is God's church, how could he allow them to be so evil universally across the board? I'm putting words in his mouth. I don't want to do that. But, but I mean, the sense that I've had from talking to him about it and reading what he's written about it, he was worried that not only would he lose his faith, but he would teach his children to resent Christianity because of the resentment that he had in him. So he left. He went to a different branch of Christianity that, no, is not perfect, that has its own scandals, all of that. But it wasn't the situation that he had encountered of, I invest myself fully in this thing, and now I feel totally betrayed because it is not what I thought it was when I signed up. I mean, and I know what this feels like. You know, I, I've talked about my experience with, experiences with the Legionaries of Christ. But I, I don't know that I can 
ever adequately state how much trust, how much faith I put in them as an organization. As a cradle Catholic growing up being taught to trust priests, being trust, taught to look at priests as though, you know, they were something special, something above us. And then finding this order of priests that engaged in the kind of at least superficial orthodoxy, and for many of them, I think it was authentic orthodoxy, that um, to, to, the, to the authentically Catholic mind, if you worship God in the right way, if you pray in the right way, if you make the right noises and the right gestures and, and the right showing of faith, it is indicative of the fact that you are sincere and you can be trusted, at least to me, as a teenager, it was. And, you know, when I, one of my friends who was on the inside with me, you know, I was in the seminary for a very short time. I didn't, it was like not even a month. It was a, a week or two and I was going crazy and I was starting to make the other guys question whether they were supposed to be there so they kicked me out. But, but I did this coworker program where I volunteered for a year after uh, high school to go live in community and do apostolate work and stuff like that. And one of the guys I was living with, you know, started questioning a lot of the stuff that was going on. You know, why are we doing this? Why are we saying we care about all these people when really all we care about is the money that the rich people have? And, and I defended everything from him. I, I came up with excuses. I, I had the ability in my mind to justify all of the things until at some point I no longer could and something inside me flipped. And when I began to look at it that way, all I could see everywhere was the corruption. And unfortunately, as it turned out, I was right. The corruption was bad. In fact, the corruption was worse than I thought it was because I knew that for so many bad things to be happening in so many legionary apostolates, it meant you know, the branches of a tree don't produce diseased fruit unless the trunk of the tree has a disease. So to me, it made sense that Masiel was corrupt. But I wasn't particularly given to believing the sex abuse allegations against him. And remember, this is the late 90s. This is before the sex abuse crisis broke in the church. It was almost unthinkable to me that he could be that gross and that evil. But he was. But the sense that I had of they are involved in something that is evil. They're harming souls. They're using people. They're manipulating and lying to and, and just destroying people's lives that started to become more of a reality to me and they did it to me they tried to ruin my reputation with all of my friends they tried to cut me off from all of my contacts and and remember this had been my life for several years i went to a legionary high school in texas i went to the highland school in in irving texas i lived there with the priests for my entire senior year of high school i went on missionary trips then I went into this coworker program. I only wound up being in it for six months before I left, not a year. But I spent a couple of years in community with these people. They were my life. All my best friends were there, my girlfriend, her mom. Everybody was involved in the Legion and the Regnum Christi. And, and my life back at home in small town upstate New York, where I didn't have any friends and I'd left public school two years prior because I realized it was making me into a crappy person to be there, I had nothing. I, I didn't have these connections back at home. So when they tried to uproot me from this network of friends and, and from the people that I loved and cared about most, I mean, they were trying to destroy my life and they almost did. 
And I very, very nearly lost my faith. And I'm not really sure how I saved it. Um, my path to tradition was definitely a part of that, of, of deepening my understanding of the orthodox pathways that still existed within the church, whether it was in the Eastern Rites, whether it was in the Latin Mass, which only came to me you know, after I graduated from college. Um, but what I find really difficult here is that when the church starts to feel to me, the Catholic Church starts to feel to me like every bit the corrupt institution that the legionaries of Christ were. I mean, when I recognized that the legionaries were, were riddled with evil, there was only one response that made sense. Fight it. Fight the damn thing. Do everything you can to stop them from getting their clutches into people that you love or, or anyone else because out of human decency, I didn't want to see people sucked into this thing. So when I start feeling like the church is just as corrupt as an institution, I immediately start to become afraid because I could justify my battle with the legionaries of Christ that went on in my entire four years that I was at Steubenville and when I became a Catholic writer. And, you know, I, I could justify that battle because they are a non-essential group within the church. They could cease to exist tomorrow. It doesn't matter. And the church would go on because they're not fundamental. They're accidental. They're not essential to the life of the faith. Orders can come and go and they should go. But the church is essential. So what do you do when you come face to face with that level of corruption, that depth of, oh my gosh, it's universal. It's everywhere. You feel like for a while you're Abraham, you know, pleading with God about saving Sodom. You know, if there's five righteous men and the thing is in, in the church, I mean, maybe what there's five righteous bishops. There's not much left. Everywhere you look, it's really, really bad, and the contradictions abound. So I'm afraid when I come face-to-face -face with this because I don't know how to deal with it. And I'm, I'm in a position where people, like maybe some of you, look, look at me and they say, well, what do, you, what do you think the answer is? I don't know. I'm looking for it. We had an issue with uh, corrupt audio and video, and I had to, to stop and, uh, and start re-recording. But what I was saying is... You know, I, I don't have the answers. This is uncomfortably vulnerable for me. Um, there's nothing about this that, that I like. And the thing is, is that when I put myself out here like this, and when I say these things, I know I'm going to be attacked for it. I mean, there are people right now who are hearing the things that I'm saying, and clickety-click, they're out there you know, tweeting and, and writing articles and headlines and stuff about how I'm just rushing towards apostasy. You know, and it's ironic to me because I am accused of being a grifter all the time because I make a living out of doing this. But the thing is, is that what grifters do, let me just pull this down here a little bit and adjust this camera. Sorry about that, but again, trying to fix this on the fly. But what, what grifters would do is they would pander to you. I would be telling you what you want to hear. I wouldn't be the guy taking the controversial view on issues. I wouldn't be the guy, you know, making fun, honestly making fun of the idea that Benedict is still the Pope because it's absolutely ludicrous to me. I lost people over that. I wouldn't be the guy saying, hey, you know what? I think COVID is serious because a lot of people on my side are angry about this. 
and they want to fight me because I said, I think that it's something we have to take seriously. Now I'm totally fine with people disagreeing with me. I'm fine with people having a debate with me about stuff to a certain extent. Um, but if I think a position is solid or if I think a position is stupid, I'm going to say that and I'm going to, I'm going to stare you down and I'm going to have that argument. You know, I, I'm conscientious of the fact that I have, I support 10 people in this house right now, 11 when my father-in-law is here and he's here more often than not these days because he's almost 90 years old and he can't take care of himself anymore. And, and I have a lot of people depending on me. So I could, I could go out there and I could pander. I could go out there and be like, hey, did you hear about this latest outrageous thing? Can you believe they did this thing? And get everybody all riled up, you know? I could go out there and say, hey, did you hear about, you know, the way this latest doom and gloom prophecy applies to the present time? Are we in the end times? Are we in the fulfillment of the Fatima, pro Fatima prophecy? I could do all that stuff. Um, when I have covered topics along these lines in the past, what I have discovered is that they're very popular. People really, really like that stuff. People are worried. They're upset. They know that something's not right. They know something is going on that doesn't work for them. Um, you know, they look at the world and they're like, we're in trouble. Things are not okay. And I feel that too, but I'm never going to tell you what it is. I think you want to hear just because I think you want to hear it. It's my job to try to give you the truth. So that's what I'm here to do. I, I have this big problem with, with the, with the, the tribalism that's going on out there. I'm not a fan of it. Um, I don't like it. I don't like this. Hey, you have to do this thing to be part of the club stuff. That's, that's, that's not, I, I want to encourage you. If I think that something is important or something is necessary, it's my job to persuade you. That's my job. It's not my job to browbeat you or guilt trip you or, you know, try to exclude you from the in group. If you don't do a certain thing, it's my job to say, Hey, did you know about this? You might not have, I didn't. Here's what I learned and it might help you. And I think that it's becoming critically important for us to understand this because like I have been saying recently, there's really only two kinds of Catholics left in the world. There are conservative Catholics, conservative Novus Ordo going Catholics, and there are traditional Catholics and traditional Catholics is actually a larger group than the people who just go to traditional Latin mass under some more pontificum. They're the Eastern Rite Catholics, you know, the Byzantines and the Ukrainians and the Maronites and the Melkites and the Chaldeans and all these guys. Anybody who is part of a long-standing multi-century tradition of liturgy and faith, not this new, newly created stuff uh, that's post-conciliar, that, that gets consigned to category number one, the conservative Catholics who are in that paradigm uh, through no fault of their own this isn't, I'm not trying to blame anybody for anything, but traditionalists are pre-conciliar. They're people who have this unbroken uh, tradition that goes back hundreds of years versus the, the new stuff that came out of the 1960s. That's sort of the divide. Um, the liberal Catholics aren't, they're just not going to be a thing anymore. They're not going to show up anymore post-COVID. Um, they're, they're not a significant demographic force because 
you know, they're, they're aging. Uh, the ones who aren't tend to contracept um, or to at the, the very least, they have small families. They don't present a, a path to the future for the church. And many of them are just warm bodies filling seats. They're not going to, there's just not going to be a significant factor financially, demographically for the, for the church going forward. They're the people who came because it was the thing that you do. And now the habit's been broken and they're not going to come anymore. So we have these two groups, the conservatives and the traditionalists, and we've got stuff we've got to work out. There are real disagreements of faith and liturgy and theology it, pre and post conciliar. I mean, it's, it's very significant to the point where I, I have often repeated the point pre and post conciliar Catholicism are essentially not the same religion. They're so different, but they feel completely alien to one another. And it's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time working together. At the same time, I come from that post conciliar world. I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. I grew up in a large extended Catholic family of people who to this day go to the Novus Ordo. And guess what? They're good people. They're people who are holy, they're faithful. They, they do their devotions, they pray their rosaries, they go to confession, they receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, they follow the church's teachings, they have large families. They care about all of this stuff. They're not bad people. They're not people I'm going to ever look down on because they were given something, again, through no fault of their own, that, that happens to have been inferior. They're, they're making the best life they can out of what they have and they're also trying to be obedient and faithful to the church and they're saying well we were given this thing and the pope gave it to us and the church gave it to us so it can't be bad right and it's sort of like i mean i hate to use profane analogies but but it's like you have this car right and you go to work every day in the car and the car works it's fine it starts up without a problem it's reliable you know, you got some miles on the engine, and but it's going strong. It gets you to work. It gets you home. It's comfortable. The radio's fine. You know, the heating and the air conditioning all work. The seats are okay. Like, it's, it's not a flashy car, but it gets you there. Spiritually speaking, a lot of people who are in the Novus Ordo paradigm, in that world, they're okay with the car that they have. They're okay with their commute in to life every day or every Sunday, or however often they can go, you know, to mass and, and things like that. They're, they're okay, because it's working for them. And they don't see a reason why they should necessarily change. And it's, it's difficult to say, well, your spiritual vehicle is, is generic, and you could go a lot further, and you could get better gas mileage, or, you know, you could, you could ride in more comfort and more style. Again, the analogy fails. But the idea is, they're okay with where they are and, and I can't fault them for saying, I don't need to upgrade right now, or I don't even see this other thing as an upgrade. So that's something we have to push down the road. We're going to figure that out later. But right now that's not what we actually need to be doing. What we need to be doing is recognizing that we're it, we're all that's left. So how do we work together? What, what bishops need to be figuring out is, Hey, these communities, these conservative parishes, these traditionalist parishes, they're the only place in my diocese where there's any growth, where there's any vocations, where there's families and kids 
and, and, and men are actually coming to church and they're involved. That's where the lifeblood of my diocese is. And I'm going to make sure I give them all the resources I can to flourish and grow. There are a number of bishops out there, probably many, maybe even most, who would rather do whatever they can to stop the growth of those communities than help them, than to see them flourish. And, you know, financially, that's not going to be feasible for very long. But it is what it is. So I want to move to the second part of what I wanted to do in today's show, which was actually supposed to be more lighthearted. Uh, and that was to look at some of the questions from readers that came in. I had asked on social media today, you know, hadn't had time to do a video in a while. Do you have any questions for me? Um, and I threw it out to people on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter, weirdly, I didn't get really a lot of responses. Facebook, I got some. Uh, the first comes from uh, Peter Gay W, who asks, where do babies come from? Peter, you're going to have to ask your mom and dad about that. I thought you were a grown-up, but apparently not. Uh, Ethan asks if I've seen the Fatima movie and did I like it. No, I have not seen it. I was actually supposed to have been sent a review link for Fatima, and it never came through for some reason. The promotional company that went to send it to me never came through. I, I got access to it another way, but I haven't taken the time to watch it. I got to admit, this is a problem that I have. Uh, these Catholic movies, a lot of times, they just don't look very appealing. This one looked like it had decent production values, but the story and the editing uh, and the acting, I mean, just in the trailer alone uh, gave me some indications that it was going to be less enjoyable than I would have liked. Uh, it kind of felt like a remake of the... You know, the animated Fatima movie from CCC that everybody saw when they were a kid. Um, I'll probably watch it at some point, but no, I have not watched it yet. I have seen a number of people saying that it was a little underwhelming, but we'll see. Uh, priest Holes. N.M. Clancy asks me if uh, Priest Holes for hiding priests in times of persecution. Do you have one? How do you make one? Don't know how to make one. I am the least handy guy in the world. I can build you a computer. I can write you something. I can make you a video. I cannot build you a priest hole. I also live in the desert uh, here in Arizona where we don't have basements and we don't have uh, you know, big spaces in the walls to hide people. Um, but I think that's how that used to be done. Uh, Tony asks, why is it important to support independent Catholic media and apostolates? So it's a good question. I think independent Catholic media gives you a perspective that you don't get anywhere else. Um, Journalism is a weird thing. I'm not a journalist. Uh, never have been a journalist. Didn't go to journalism school. Don't have the training. Don't have the personality. Honestly, uh, I am pretty non-extroverted. I am not the kind of person who goes out and badgers people to get answers to questions. Um, so journalism is a weird thing. But what I prefer to do is, is to sit there and look at information that exists and analyze what we know not just about the present situation, but about things that have already happened and kind of apply that pattern recognition of, okay, this is what's going on. And, uh, this is my take on it. And I think independent Catholic media is going to give you a different take than you're going to get anywhere else. Um, first of all, we don't have the bias, uh, typically of large donors 
but I really, I can only apply this to very small independent media. Um, there are larger segments of the independent Catholic media world that have demonstrably had their strings pulled uh, by large donors and, and it's changed their tenor. Uh, you know, bishops, relationships with bishops tend to be a thing that influences um, the objectivity of independent Catholic media. So there's that. Um, it's challenging because I, I think that Independent Catholic media has changed significantly since I got into the game here in 2014. Um, there are only a handful of outlets out there and there were fewer of them back then. And we're all warring kind of for market share over a, a sort of a small space. And I think that the more competition that there is in that space, the more you have to be discerning about whether the the outlets that you're going to for your information, do they convey to you that they are looking first and foremost for the truth rather than the pursuit of uh, an audience, an agenda, a personal crusade? Are, are they serving their own ego, especially some of these independent proprietors you know, that are doing their own thing? It's really easy once you get a little bit of fame in this world to start taking yourself too seriously. And I think it's the one thing you can't afford to do. You know, one of the reasons I make all these jokes that I make here, one of the reasons that I'm brutally honest, one of the reasons that I engage with my audience at a micro level on social media, in the comment boxes, you know, wherever, is because I wanna remember who I am. And I'm a guy who started out doing this stuff almost 30 years ago in chat rooms on the internet when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, it's where I learned my faith. You know, I, I would get in these discussions and I would find that I didn't know the answers. So I'd grab books off of my parents' shelves and I'd look stuff up. And that was, was kind of how I learned what it meant to be a Catholic. And then when the blogosphere came out after I graduated from college, I spent a lot of time in comment boxes, you know, people like Amy Wellborn's comment box, Mark Shea before he went insane. You know, I went to those larger bloggers and I started my own and it sort of, it built from there, but I've always been the guy who was in the trenches. And, and to me, I'm allergic to ivory tower syndrome. I don't want to be there. It's more convenient in a way because you want to be able to be detached from everything and just be like, well, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to put it out there and then I'm going to go away. And there may come a time where that's what I have to do. But I think that there are people who are operating in this space who are to use my own crass phrase, they're huffing their own farts all the time. They believe in the legend of their own grandeur. They, they self-aggrandize to a point where it becomes difficult to take them seriously anymore. And when the personal agenda takes over, you have a problem. And there are personality types that are not well suited towards maintaining that, that fundamental integrity and, and, and realness that that comes with being grounded when you, when you're, when you have a tendency towards egotism, fame is a bad thing for you. Now I'm not going to say that I don't like affirmation from, from my success or from my platform or from my audience as a writer, I'm sort of a, a caricature of that archetype of the insecure person who has to keep putting their work out there so that people can say, you know, that's good. I'm validating you. Like that's a thing. That's a real thing. 
artists, writers, authors, we all kind of have that to a certain extent. But I'm also so riddled with those insecurities, with that needing to make sure I'm doing good enough work, I'm doing the right thing, I'm saying the honest thing, that I'm not able to ever sort of rest on my laurels and be okay with it. I, I, I can't pander to you. I, I can't tell you what you want to hear. I, I'm addicted to saying what I believe is true and right, even if it makes you mad at me and you go away. There are some people I actually want to make mad and have them go away. Uh, but I, I can't do this popularity contest thing. You know, One Peter Five was for a time the biggest traditionalist Catholic website in the world. And then we kind of let that slide. A lot of that was because of my own personal failings and my own issues that were going on in my life. And I, I wasn't applying enough of myself into the work and into the site. It's one of the reasons why uh, I don't remember if I've said since I'm re-recording the second half of the show here, but but I, I took back over uh, this summer. I took back over the editing of our articles. I took back over the selection process of our submissions because I I want to chart our course in a different direction. I'm not happy with where we've been and, and where we're going, and, and I don't think we're engaging with the things that really matter. And, and I kind of – I carved out – a, a big niche in this space. I don't think that it's, I don't think it's prideful to say that, that I and this publication have made a big impact in the traditional Catholic media niche. And there were people who came and rushed in to fill that void um, or, or, or to join us in that space. And now it's getting really crowded and and we're kind of just repeating and repeating and repeating the same themes, but I don't feel like we're moving forward and that's bothering me. And I, I'm looking outside, I'm looking beyond this, I'm looking to, to disambiguate us from the people who have kind of come into this space because I think there's more and bigger questions that need to be asked. It was one thing when I made it safe for people like Michael Voris to criticize Pope Francis. I, Voris wouldn't have done this, I don't think, if people like me hadn't made it safe for him. Um, he actually attacked people like me, you know, said that we were spiritual pornographers uh, for being critical of the Pope. And then he shows up three or four years later and says, okay, well, now Church Militant says it's okay to criticize the Pope. We're right before and we're right now. Well, pff, whatever, dude, you know, it, again, huffing your own farts. I really don't care. Uh, whether you think it's okay now and you didn't think it was okay then, you know, this is why this Unite the Clans stuff doesn't really work. Because to unite the clans, you need a strong leader, you need a common cause, and you don't need just a common enemy. And when everybody's kind of working on their own agenda, that's a problem. So going back to the original question, why is supporting Catholic independent media important? It's important because you want the truth. But what that means is that you really need to apply your own discernment. Are the people you're following in the Catholic media space more concerned about the truth than about a narrative, an agenda, a, a crusade, their own personal, you know, aggrandizement or well-being or, or, or media fiefdom or whatever it is? And if you feel confident that they're going to do that for you, that they're going to go to bat for what's true, even if it costs them, then I think that's super important. And, and that's why I do what I do. Um, so Tony, you actually had uh, another question. You had several, but I think I, I can't hit them all. 
Uh, question number two was, how has Tradland changed since you started 1 Peter 5? I think it's become more fractious. I think that um, traditional Catholicism, it's weird because it's growing. And so in that sense, there's a really positive shift. Traditional Catholicism in the parishes is growing by double digits uh, in the United States, at least. We're seeing 25, 35, 45% growth, some places triple digit growth. Parishes are, are exploding at the seams. There's not enough room for all the people who wanna come. And this is during COVID. When COVID's over, it's probably gonna be more. Um, so in real life traditionalism, we're seeing an infusion of of people from those conservative Novus Ordo parishes who either want to receive communion on the tongue or they want to receive kneeling or they just want to go to mass without dealing with jumping through a bunch of stupid ho hoops. Uh, maybe they've been live streaming uh, the traditional mass and, and now they're interested in making the switch because they had a chance to sort of check it out without the social pressure of being in a place that was unfamiliar. I don't know. So that's a good thing. Um, how has it changed though since I started doing this? I mean, I've been a trad for 16 years um, and it seemed to remain relatively stable until the last probably three or four years. And now there's a lot of people occupying this space of, I'm a traditionalist. What does that mean? Does it mean you know, you just like the traditional Latin mass. Does it mean that you're pro SSPX? Does it mean that you're a city of a contest? Does it mean that you're actually a left cath socialist LARPer who likes the trad mass, but actually is, you know, in favor of the redistribution of wealth. I mean, there's all these weird categorizations that now seem to fall under traditionalism that they, they make it so that the label, which I never liked really in the first place, having to have that label, it now makes less sense than it did before. And that's a problem, I, I think. I've argued in the past that we need to go back to just being Catholic again, and, and the labels are, are problematic. But unfortunately, with the crisis of leadership that we're dealing with, and the crisis of Catholicism that we're dealing with, the crisis of faith, there's no way to do this without labels. You kind of have to parse out where you exist in the spectrum. Um, but traditional Catholicism, I think, is more viable than ever in terms of the traditional liturgy and sacraments and theology. Those are growing. The adherence to those are growing. You know, the, 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 the pious practices of reception of communion and, and kneeling and on the tongue and, and, and reverent liturgies and all that, that's going to grow. That's the future of the church. But traditionalism is sort of this weird, quasi-subversive, marginalized movement of, of people on the fringes. I, I think that that's changing, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that it, it looks different, and, and I think that it's okay to say, I like all this stuff, but I don't necessarily want to be a trad, or I don't want to be associated with old guard traditionalism because it's grumpy and, and it's not, I don't know, it's too cynical. And I think a lot of cynicism is warranted and I'm certainly guilty of plenty of it myself, but this whole thing about bridging, uh, building bridges and, and bridging gaps and, and figuring out a way to work together, this is where we gotta go. I, I wish I could give you a more coherent answer. Unfortunately, my thoughts on this are still sort of gelling, so I, I don't have that yet. Um, 
Let's see. What else? What else? What else? Uh, who are the saints from our time? Allison asks, uh, would we know about them or can you point to someone living as a modern day saint? I think it's an interesting question. I think one of my professors in college, Dr. Regis Martin, said that saints were usually the last people on the block to know it. And I think that this goes back to what I was saying about Catholic media. More likely than not, we aren't going to find the saints of today in the public sphere and in the public eye. Um, I certainly would not hold myself up as an example of virtue or piety or sanctity. You know, even my faith struggles aside, which I've talked about lately, I'm I'm a sinner and I and I'm struggling to find my way. And, and I don't want anybody to look to me like I am someone special in, in that life of of the pursuit of sanctity. But I do think there are a couple people in the public eye that that might fit. You know, Bishop Schneider. I think immediately comes to mind, he's a man I've met. He he somehow simultaneously embodies that, the powerful presence and confidence that comes with really being a man of of God, deeply rooted in prayer and sacraments and faith, while at the same time being absolutely humble, uh, relatable, accessible, kind. Um, I think that Archbishop Vigano is potentially another figure. Um, I don't know him personally. I don't have the sense of, of who he is. Um, but if everything that he's saying is sincere, he's on that trajectory and moving quickly. But I do think that most of the saints that we're going to find right now are going to be people who are probably in monasteries or convents, you know, people like the Benedictines of Norcia or the Benedictines of Mary uh, in Missouri. That's where we're going to find the saints now. We need the contemplative life. We need the people who are removed from the world and are influencing it through their prayer, their penance, um, their life of faith, uh, hidden away. Because that's where the power of the church has always come from. The church in space, asks Dan, as we start to build orbital rings and off-planet colonies, what will the church look like? Potential problems, potential strengths. You know, it's interesting. We actually published an article not that long ago about this and uh, just about how the rubrics would have to change if you were in microgravity because you got to make sure that you're preserving particles of the Holy Eucharist, um, how the liturgical calendar would change if you're on a planet that orbits the sun in a different, you know, the Martian uh, year is something like 600 and some days as opposed to our 365. So they're interesting hypothetical concepts. It would take pretty much an entire show to address it. But as we're looking at the realistic possibility of colonizing Mars or of having a lunar colony or whatever, some of this stuff's going to have to get dealt with eventually because you're going to have chaplains. So I think it'd be a cool thing to look at in more depth uh, further down the road. What are your thoughts on restoring a Catholic monarchy, asks Peter. Um, I, I don't think it's going to happen, at least not anytime soon. You're going to need a fundamental change in the way our societies work uh, for, for monarchy to be functional. And you're going to need conversion on a mass scale for a Catholic monarchy to even be a possibility. So I think we need to work within the political frameworks that we have because um, we're just not... There's no way to get there from here. Um, not now. Uh, what should people do, asks Aaron. Uh, uh, what should be done? 
with people who tend towards liberalism. According to Dr. Jordan Peterson, there are traits on the big five personality test that one is born with that have been proven to determine if a person identifies as liberal or conservative. If this is true, then it would seem that God intentionally made some people to identify as liberal. So then how can a person incorporate liberals into the church in a manner that they can operate the way they were made to be without destroying the orthodoxy of the church? It's a fascinating question. Uh, if any of you out there are qualified in the field of psychology or know a good deal about this topic, uh, it would be something I'd be interesting, uh, interested in talking about on a show. Um, because I, 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 you know, there are definitely tendencies that you see within people. You know, why is it that artistic people tend to be so much more uh, predisposed towards liberal attitudes and beliefs? And why is it that more logical people tend to be more conservative? I mean, there, there's these things that, that seem to happen within personality types. Why is it that cities skew so liberal, whereas the rural countryside tends to see, uh, skew conservative? Very, very interesting stuff that I don't know the answer from. Um, Brian Mungo asks, where do babies come from? Apparently, Peter Gates' question needed to be repeated a second time. Uh, Brian, I hope that you figured this out because I think you're on kid number five, if I remember correctly. Brian's an old friend of mine from college. Uh, I hope you know how that works. Sounds like you're pretty good at it. Let's see. Do do to do. Joshua asks sad trads, glad trads, and mad trads. A brief overview of stereotypes and advice on how they can all work together to build stronger local community. I mean, this is what I've been talking about in this episode. You know, how, how do you do this? I think we need to stop drawing these harsh boundaries and saying, if you don't do this, you're not part of the club. You're not part of the team. The membership card is less important, in my view, than trying to live an authentic life, uh, having a disposition of, of you, you ever hear that analogy of the full cup, the empty cup? You can't learn anything with a full cup. Traditionalists in particular tend to come at things, in my experience, as from the full cup mentality. I already know all this stuff. You guys are modernists. You're not well-formed. You don't even know. You're not even really part of the, you're not even really a trad. Whatever. Just stop. We need to be a little bit more humble. And by a little, I mean like a lot. And I think we just need to treat each other better and try to understand where people come from and how they got there. And think about if you're somebody who, you know, for example, came to tradition at some point later in your life and you weren't brought up with it, like where were you before and, and how easy would you have been to have been convinced um, to, to make the switch and, and what made it happen? And was it a Damascus moment? Was it, was it totally some big epiphany where you were like, I never saw this coming and I never thought I would be convinced of this, but then there I was. And try to understand that other people take different things to get them there. And, and some people are just gonna be more resistant for reasons that you may not even know. So work together with people. Um, James Daniel asked me something about, um, when are we gonna do a cigar show? This needs to happen. I may have to start a separate podcast for that one, but he needs to get a camera and microphone. So James Daniel, Jimmy, my cousin, get a camera and microphone and we'll talk. Let's see, quickly, quickly, what else have we got? Um, Andrew asks, why are Joe Biden's earlobes sometimes attached and sometimes detached? I think he's an alien. Pentagon did confirm the existence of extraterrestrial 
technology and uh, UFOs this year. So I would take a look at Biden's origin story. Would like to see Uncle Roger as a guest on your show. I would love to have Uncle Roger as a guest. If you don't know, Uncle Roger is um, he's a comedian and uh, he does this character, uh, Uncle Roger, who's Chinese and he does things like review fried rice videos, uh, you know, from cooking shows. It's, it's a little off color at times, I'm not gonna lie. Drain it. Drain. What's she doing? What's she doing? Drain the, oh my God. You're killing me, woman. Hiya, drain the, she. The rice. She draining rice with colander, hi. But he does the whole accent, it's, it's funny stuff. Carlene asks, should women wear pants? My answer would be only if they look good in them. I don't care to get involved in that argument. Francis asks, why was pita butter condemned at the 9th Provincial Council of Nova Carthagena? I would counter that sacrum, 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 paragraph number 497, argues that peanut butter is one of the gifts that prove the existence of God. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Yeah, nothing else for right now. Uh, it's always hard to re-record a show when you've already done it and the first time it came out so well. So uh, I don't know what happened or why it crashed. I decided to record it in a different app this time, so hopefully this works better. But here we are at the part of the show where we ask ourselves, what lessons did we learn today, boys and girls? And the answer is um, don't trust your computer to record a show without corrupting the data. Don't try to re-record uh, the second half of the show after uh, you would already have normally quit your day job and you've had several Irish whiskeys. And finally, um, don't take any wooden nickels. So uh, other than that, uh, I would like to get back to doing videos again soon. Hopefully I can figure out how to do that you're having some logistical problems with getting the videos done because they take a long time. And some things that I have forgotten is that when I make videos, there's always, always some sort of technical problem that needs to be dealt with. And when we are dealing with these technical problems, it is taking a lot of time. So, you know, I, I wasted at least three or four hours today on technical issues that totally shouldn't have happened, were totally unexpected. I have the most up-to-date equipment. I throw money at equipment so that it works out of the box because I don't want to have to worry about it, and it still doesn't. Uh, that's just how it is. Uh, part of the problem is that we are a small enough organization that I can't afford to hire a bunch of people to do all the minion tasks that need to be done, but, but big enough that we want to be professional. And so we get caught in between, and I wind up doing everything myself. Um, videos like the one Peter Five Minute frequently take me somewhere between eight and 12 hours to produce for a 10 minute video. So from, from concept, looking, you know, doing the research to find the stories, scripting, getting everything set up in the teleprompter, shooting it three times to make sure I have the right takes, editing it, uh, doing post, getting it up on social media, getting it up on the website, doing all the promotion. It, it's a long day of, of doing nothing but video work. And that's if there are no technical issues each time I do an episode. Podcasts, believe it or not, are actually a little quicker because even though they're longer format, there's less editing involved. It's more of just a discussion that unfolds. Although lately we've found with the new platform that we're using, there's even more editing there just 
in order to get back and forth between the two speaker views. So editing's a big thing. I need to find an editor, uh, an editor, speaking too quickly, um, somebody that I can afford who I can just hand this stuff off to. Uh, I would like to shoot for trying to get back to doing at least a podcast once a month. You know, I, I'd like to hear it from you. I mean, if you're watching this, chances are you like our videos and you'd probably like to see them back. It was weird to me because when I announced that we were not going to be doing videos for a little while, I didn't really get any feedback. Nobody said, oh, you know, uh, oh, please keep doing videos. I had like one or two people say, oh, where did your videos go? So it was almost like nobody even noticed we were gone. And I like doing videos and I'm comfortable in this format, but it's a lot of extra work on top of the work that I'm already doing. So if I don't have to, I'm not necessarily going to unless I know that it's something that you want. So if it is, let us know. If you have suggestions for content that you're looking for, uh, either in video format or on the website, let us know in the comments. Uh, we're, we're really trying to move in a different direction and I've been getting some positive feedback that it's working, so I'd like to keep going there. Um, last thing I wanna say is, you know, we're coming up in the end of the month here in September. It's been a lot harder this year to hit our fundraising goals. We've hit them a few times. We've not hit them a few times. We've gone over once or twice. Uh, but there's a lot of bills that have to be paid. As I said, feeding a lot of mouths here, uh, trying to keep everything going and would like at some point to be able to do more than we're doing now. You know, I, I have an accountant that I owe money to that I haven't paid and we're behind on her. There's all kinds of stuff. So if you can afford it, if you can chip in five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, onepeter5.com forward slash donate. It makes all the difference in the world because having the financial security to know the bills are gonna be paid this month, it takes so much pressure off me to just do the content mill, the grind. And I can focus more on quality. Like what is it that, that we're looking for that, that if it takes a little more time, it's okay. Cause it's the kind of thing that we want um, more of. So. Uh, if you could do that, that would be fantastic. In terms of this video, please like it, please share it, please subscribe to it. Make sure you hit the little bell notification because if you don't, you don't know, especially since we don't release every week right now, uh, you won't know when a new video comes out if you don't hit that little bell icon. So make sure you subscribe, tell your friends about us. Um, keep us in your prayers, give us all your love. And uh, and that's all I got. <laughs> it's, uh, I started recording the first time today before noon and it is now almost 6 p.m. and I'm ready to be done. So until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for watching the One Peter Five podcast. God bless you.